Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We think a lot about what people say. We share their excitement when they say, I just got a promotion or I just took a great vacation. We're sad when they tell us that a friend or someone in their family is sick. What we don't think a lot about is how they say what they say. For example, did you know that saying no comes slower to us than saying yes? And that's true in every language, that it takes more time before we answer no. Or that the time that it takes to answer a question, on average, is 200 milliseconds. Nick Enfield is a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney. And when he was just starting out, he went to Laos to study the native language, Lao. And he noticed something odd. When I tried to transcribe what people said, those nice, well-structured sentences that I'd learned in university were not being produced uh, at all. What we, what we had were these sort of false starts and these recyclings and these cutoffs and these uh, hesitation markers and so forth. And I started to realize that, uh, well, in, in that kind of a situation where you closely analyze uh, what people are saying, then you really see those things right in front of your face. And the thing about natural conversation is that when we're participating in it, we don't have the time, we don't have the mental uh, sort of bandwidth to, to pay attention to all those little things, although we do process them at some level. Enfield spent years afterwards thinking about those little things that we all do, but that we don't really process, that we don't really pay attention to, like say, um and uh. Apparently, on average, for every 60 words we utter, we use filler words like um and ah uh, once. Enfield is the author of How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation, and he says years of paying attention to a world that's hidden, a world that's filled with all sorts of crutches, like, for example, the word like. It's taught him a lot. It's something that we really underestimate and most people don't know much about is just the sheer amount of psychological processing that goes on when we just put simple sentences together. I have to, mm. you know, retrieve the words from deep in my mind and I have to encode them into various uh, sounds and then I have to pronounce them and there's mm. all sorts of motor programs that need to be executed and so on. So it's a miracle we can speak at all, right. um, <laughs> let alone speak fluently. And so mm. You know, using things like um, uh, etc. could be uh, certainly do function in some way as fillers, as you put it, um, in the sense that they give you a little bit of time. You know, they give you a bit of a buffer to get your kind of signal together. But they also give the hearer uh, important information, which is, you know, as a speaker, I'm not finished yet. Uh, and therefore I'm asking that you just hold off because I'm, I'm not ready to pass over the right. floor to you. So right. that they have these sort of regulatory uh, functions. And, and then I suppose there'd be one other function at least, and that is that sometimes we can choose between different versions of these. And uh, you mentioned the word like mm -hmm. uh, as a kind of filler, and this is right. one that's a lot of people have an opinion about. And it, it might be associated with younger people. It might be associated with people of a certain sort of you know, subculture or what have you, um, if that's the case, then what you're also doing by choosing this filler as opposed to this other filler is somehow signaling your identity. Mm -hmm. So these are very multi-purpose um, little objects in language. And so, uh, you know, that's in a sense one of the reasons why I'm, I'm going into bat for them in a certain sense. Um, I used I used to have a uh, music teacher in eighth grade, and he would just sit at his desk at the front of the classroom 
And as one of the students was speaking, he would count on his fingers, and you could just see that the fingers going up, how many likes he heard while you were answering his question, just to show you how <laughs> annoying it was to him that you kept saying like. Um, are there, have, how long have people been saying like for? Are there gender differences? Are there age differences with these kinds of, like these filler words? Well, uh, you know, like is not actually a word that I talk about in the book, but there is work on it. Um, and in fact, I have a student, Ellen Ashed, who's uh, recently done a study of exactly this word in, in Sydney. Uh, and she found that uh, people had very strong beliefs if you ask them about the word like um, in terms of who they think uses it. So what she <laughs> found was that whether whichever part of town you talk to people in, uh, they would say, well, you know, it's just this one part of town where people would use that, you know, in the, in, the, in the sort of the northern beaches part of Sydney, which is a little bit kind of Californian in its, in its uh, culture, <laughs> yep, if you yep. like. And, and people would always say, well, that's where they're always using like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of girls who go shopping and that sort of thing. And they had very strong views about the, uh, the stereotypes of the people who would use like. But what Eleanor found was that actually if you record these people's speech which she did it doesn't matter which part of town you come from you use huh. it just the same and use it a lot hmm. so um this is a very good example of the kind of thing where you've got people's sort of uh beliefs about language differing quite substantially from their actual behavior i think people would be shocked at how much um and uh there probably is in their speech as you were saying like if somebody were to transcribe what they were saying that it would be all over the place Absolutely no. I mean, it's the it's it's a very well known observation in in linguistics when you go and interview a person or ask a person about how they speak, they will uh, have certain opinions about or beliefs rather about how they talk. They'll they'll say, for example, I don't I don't use that hesitation mark, or I would never say like in that way. Right, or, right. You right. know, I don't I don't do vocal fry or whatever. But <laughs> all you have to do is make a recording of them and then play it back to them and they'll be shocked uh they'll go into you know the the seven stages or whatever it is you know <laughs> denial grief <laughs> anger it, with respect to their own language so it's 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 genuinely very surprising uh and sometimes sort of unsettling to hear how you actually talk given the sort of confidence with which we have beliefs about how we how we talk hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nick Enfield, author of How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. Um, so one of the points that you make is that conversations, just like any civilization, um, conversations got, have rules. Tell me some of the rules and whether we're good at abiding by rules in conversation. Well, the rules really have to do with the kind of norms of behavior in social interaction. And so a really simple example and I think kind of powerful example of the rules of conversation uh, would be that if somebody asks you a question, you should give them an answer if you can. And if you can't give the answer, you should say something that mm -hmm. accounts for that. So, you know, if I, if I ask you a simple question like, what time is it? If you know the time, you should tell me. If you don't know it, you should say something like, sorry, I don't know, or I right. haven't got my watch, or what have right, you. Right, right, right. And that's quite a powerful rule. With things like questions, with things like greetings, if I greet you, I say good morning. 
you know, it's not a law. You can't be put in jail for not answering my question. Well, you can in court, of course, but in everyday conversation, if you didn't answer my question, well, I can just say, well, that person's, you know, a bad person or a, a jerk or what have you. But that's precisely the effect of going against these rules mm. is that it really gives you a bad reputation. Um, it, it's a very uncooperative thing to do. So that would be one kind of very powerful example is, mm. is the... It's the matter of asking people questions and expecting answers. And what you're really doing when you ask a question is not just seeking a piece of information, but putting an obligation on on the other person. And mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not a it's not a very heavy kind of obligation. People are very happy to help typically by giving you the information or by telling you that they that they don't know it. But precisely because we're sort of so willing, we it's not really visible to us that we're actually have you know we've been put under an obligation. Right, right. Another right. example is the if I tell you uh, a narrative, if I launch my little narrative by saying, you know, let me tell you what happened on the bus this morning, mm-hmm. there's a kind of set of rules where you really need to, as a listener, when you say, uh-huh, or go ahead, um, you're playing by the rules of conversation in that respect. What you're doing is taking up, you know, what seemed like an invitation, but what really is a kind of a, you know, a passing on of obligations. You're taking that up and you're playing by those rules and then, as the story goes along, the rules of conversation say, you know, you really need to be showing that you're paying attention. You need right. to be nodding from time to time, saying uh-huh from time to time. <laughs> and then when the punchline comes, responding in an appropriate way. So you can always try to disobey those rules. It's something that, you know, sometimes we do in undergraduate classes at university is to say to people if you really want to see how these rules how powerful they are just try disobeying them you know in your own everyday life Mm -hmm. for example just ignoring questions people ask or walking (laughs) off in the middle of someone's story right and you'll quickly find out just how powerful those right that you kind of get this uh, black mark for doing that absolutely and people will sanction you very very powerfully and say what's wrong with you how do you see conversation, how has it changed over the last few decades and how do you see it changing? I don't think that conversation itself in the, in the kind of context among friends and family in informal settings, I don't think that the real fundaments of it change. Okay. Um, the, the fact that we've got these kinds of rules, the fact that we use these kinds of traffic signals and these special sort of rules about the timing of our interactions the fact that we hold others accountable for whether they answer or don't, these types of things don't change. I think that some of the more superficial aspects of these things will change. So, for example, uh, a certain filler might mm-hmm. become more popular than another mm-hmm. one, but in the end it's simply one little device replacing another one for right. what is fundamentally the same function. All of those things presuppose the kind of infrastructure for conversation and, and that, I think, is something that's much more ancient, much more extinctive, if you like, um, in humans and is not really apt to change. Nick Enfield is the author of How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. He's also a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you very much. On our Facebook page, we've got a great article by linguist John McWhorter looking at the evolution of the word like. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. 